This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W. Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley Jean. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast, season two, episode number 100, the Cubs Iron Man. Don't forget to listen, download, review, most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on the socials, Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, and Fly the W on Facebook, or email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Crowley, hope you had a uh, nice Christmas and uh, now getting ready for uh, New Year's Eve. Yeah, it's been uh, been pretty busy. I've been working on the Cubs cave a little bit, getting some things done, working on some pieces, getting some things framed, and uh, just trying to enjoy a little bit. Like you said, New Year's coming up, so um, trying to have as much fun, and I am going to Winterland on Saturday, so that'll be fun. All right, Saturday. So that Saturday is the 30th. I actually went yesterday, the 27th, had a great time. My uh, daughter's uh, 12th birthday celebration with a couple of uh, – her friends, my wife and my other daughter. So we all went down. Uh, super great, super easy. All the workers, as usual, at Wrigley, super friendly, um, nice and spread out, lots of fun, uh, things for all ages. There is food, there is booze, there are rides, there's lots of hot chocolate, uh, swag, uh, everything you could need. The only, my only complaint, Crawley, was afterwards, after the game, we're going to have lunch, right? Or we're going to have some lunch. So my kids like wings and one of the girls that was with us likes wings. And I knew your recommendation, but I didn't know if I could get that past the goalie. Right. So right, right, right. if you, if you weren't going to go now, you would say, where is your suggestion for those who don't know, where is your, I, place I, I always for put wings? output is the number one place for wings. Okay. In but just about, I don't know, 50 yards north of output is uh, where a lot of people think the best wings are in Wrigleyville. And that is. Are you talking about, uh, boy, I, full shilling? No, Yahtzee's. Yahtzee's, okay. Okay, right, 50, 50, about 50 yards north of Outpost, same side of the street. Right, right, right. Closed. Closed yesterday. Closed. So the trouble so is. I went, is to, I went to Cane's. We ate, we were in Wrigleyville and we ate at Cane's. I could eat at Cane's anywhere. Totally the disappointed. Tr- the, the trouble with that is when you're going for like a lunchtime thing, most of the play establishments don't open till about like three, four o'clock. 
And so if you're going for like a noon, you know, uh, well, we got there right when it opened. We got there right when it opened. It was about about one, you know, we were in there for about two, two and a half hours. At that point we were pretty, we were pretty chilled and, uh, needed some, uh, needed some nourishment. And, uh, so we, yeah. So we ended up at Cane's. All right. Well, you know, you nothing wrong with nothing wrong with nothing wrong with Canes, but like lots of places were not uh, not open yet. Yeah, they don't open. And if anyone's going down there, one that I really recommend if you're coming right off the expressway, off of 90 on Irving Park Road, there's a place called Big League Burgers. And so that's right when you get off the expressway, it'll be on your left hand side, like literally right when you get off the expressway, it has some phenomenal food. Um, if you're going at a lunchtime around lunchtime, because they will be open. All right, so enough about food, but uh, yeah, if you haven't had a chance now, how long is Winterfest open until until like the seventh? It, yeah, until about the seventh, and then the next weekend is CubsCon. So yeah, you got you got about eh, about a week left if you haven't been out there yet. And if you haven't done it, if you haven't done it, absolutely something to do. So Crawley, as we sit here on the twenty uh, eighth day, 29th day of December, the Cubs have still done nothing. And the moves altogether are pretty quiet since uh, Otani and Yamamoto. Yeah, Cleveland Guardians traded right-handed pitcher Cody Morris to the Yankees to center fielder Estevan Florial. On Wednesday, the Twins signed free agent right-handed pitcher Josh Dalmont. And today on Thursday when we're recording this, the White Sox have signed the left-handed reliever Tim Hill. So no earth-shattering moves. But, Dustin, the twin signing was big because that means 29 out of the 30 teams in MLB have added a player to their big league roster through free agents, signings, or trades. The only team that has not added anyone, your Chicago Cubs. I mean, that, that's pretty wild. That They're the only team that has not added anybody. And, I'm listen, I'm okay with, you know, why, why would you add a guy just for the sake of adding a guy, right? And, I mean, nobody nobody's – suggesting that but there are enough holes i mean they've they've got a bullpen to rebuild too so i'm not quite sure what the heck's going on yeah and i and by the way i did not see i did not see jed or carter on the bumper cars at winter (laughs) wonderfest so that's not where where they were that's not where they're at if you're wondering they're not on the bumper cars but the bumper cars are fun i i I just gotta say though you know i mean could we see some movement before new year's uh sure maybe but I mean, we, we're going to have to definitely see some movement in January because Dustin pitchers and catchers report February 13th. So we're talking about a month and a couple of weeks, so like six, seven weeks till pitchers and catchers report. So again, we, we've talked about, you know, Boris controlling a lot of what's going on and just waiting for the car with for the dominoes to fall. And once they do, it's going to be in quick succession, but uh Right now, we're at, we're at a point where we're wondering who's going to blink first. Is there going to be a team that jumps at one of those Boris clients, and then everybody kind of scrambles like a game of musical chairs? So waiting and seeing, but it, it makes you nervous to see, you know, Jed trying to thread this needle. It, 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 it's it's boy, it, as for Cub fans, it gets you nervous. Yep, absolutely gets you nervous, and part of that nervousness or part of their um, lack there of doing something has an effect on the attendance crawling. We've got some 2023 attendance numbers to uh, go over. Yeah, no surprise. Cubs attendance went up as they were in the playoff hunt until the last weekend of the season. 
everyone knows that summertime just really was rocking and rolling. And, and Dustin, there's, there's nothing better when the Cubs are in it at summertime in Wrigley. I mean, it's just perfect. Uh, the Cubs finished with an attendance of 2.8 million, which is really, really good. Um, and, and it's up compared to 2.6 million in 2022. But when you think about what the Cubs were drawing from 2016 to 2019, they were drawing Dustin an average of 3.2 million fans per season. So those numbers, you're, you know, what are you talking about? 4 million that are, you know, that you're or not 4 million, but 400,000 that you're down. I mean, that's, that's not, you know, nothing there, you know? No, it's, it's nothing. To, it's nothing to laugh at. Nothing to sneeze at, as some would say. Yeah. And so if you, you know, when we look at the attendance and this um, graphic comes from um, Bleacher Report here it is, is the best attendance. If you take a look, number one was the Dodgers with 47 K Yankees averaged 40 K per game. Padres 40 K Cardinals 40 K Braves 39 Phillies 38 uh, Astros 37 Blue Jays 37. Then you get to the Cubs at number nine at 34 and the Mariners with 32 um, as as well. And so, or 33, but when you're looking at this, Dustin, I guess the thing that, that, you know, jumps out to me from this graphic here is when you talk about the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Padres and the Braves and the Phillies, Houston, Toronto, Seattle, those were all teams that made the postseason uh, the previous year. And, and people thought that they, you know, they were excited going into the season. They're going to run the it Card back. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the Cardinals always kind of, they have a, a huge season <laughs> ticket base. And even though it, they averaged 40 K, they, they didn't have 40,000 crossing the gates, but those were 40,000 paid tickets. But, you know, the Cubs, when we went into last season, we had a lot of uncertainty. We didn't walk into 2023 thinking the Cubs were going to be as close as they were to the postseason. And so, I mean, that just goes to show you, Dustin, how a loyal Cub fans are, or, but B, when you put a winning product on the field, the fans are going to come. And when I, when, when you go in April and the weather's miserable and there's not a lot of fans, I mean, a lot of those numbers are, are happening when, you know, you're in those summer months. So if the Cubs want to continue to move those numbers up, they got to get the fan base excited. They got to be making moves and, and, and hopefully, you know, they'll get to those numbers where they were in 2016, 2019, when they average 38, 39,000 per game. Right. And now Crowley, on, on a best day at Wrigley, what the, the forty-two thousand? Right? right, yeah, it's 41, it's forty-one five hundred something like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, keep keep that in mind when we're talking about um, these attendance numbers. But it is, you know, it, it is not as great as you as you might think. And those are a lot of those are a lot of empty seats. So when we talked about, well, wait a minute, you can't sell any more seats. You can't you can't charge any more for beer. You know, they have six to 7,000 seats a game on average going unused. Otani right. would have filled, Otani would have guaranteed a sellout for every single game. Absolutely. Right? And, and that's not guaranteed. And that's, a sellout. Now I don't know that Bellinger is going to guarantee a sellout for every single game, but Otani would have guaranteed a sellout for every single game. Every seat right. would have been, every seat would have been accounted for. Now it doesn't mean everybody's going to show up. doesn't mean everybody's going to go through the turnstile. The memories have a hot dog and a beer. But every every single seat would have been sold. Yeah, and, and for a while the Cubs were just averaging three million above three million fans for that that period of time. Third, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then the pandemic comes, and then you know, you're slow to kind of get back. But 
it's it, it there is it's not the automatic sellout that you know people think it once was and so if you want that to be if you want to get back over the 3 million attendance mark I don't think people are just going to do it just to go to Wrigley Field or just to see the Cubs. You have to be the, the Cubs considering, you know, when you think about how bad 2022 was, Dustin, in every episode it was, we predict the Cubs hopefully don't get swept. I mean, they do still have a good fan base considering how they've done since 2021. I mean, you look at the south side of town and you look at attendance numbers. I mean, just absolutely, you know, they don't they don't have, you know, a lot of teams don't have what the Cubs do that they have you can guarantee probably 20,000 per game, right? Right. But if you want to get up to that 38, 39, 40, then you're going to have to do something. It's not, it's just not going to be, you know, a, a couple of uh, retreads out there and thinking that people, you know, you're not going to get Jorge Soler, you know, and, and, and one other guy and, and think that you're going to hit over that 3 million mark again. No, it's, it's different. It's, it's not, it's not what it used to be, especially with marquee and the different apps out there, it, access to seeing the games, is easier than ever. So uh, getting people in attendance is not, uh, is not just turnkey as it used to be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Fly the W670 podcast. It's episode 100 of season two, the Cubs Iron Man. Don't forget to listen, download, subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. And don't forget to leave those five-star reviews in this segment. Crawley has already started that winter reading. And as you may have already guessed, they are books about the Cubs. That's right. Crowley and the Cubs, peanut butter and jelly. Author John St. Augustine joins Crowley to talk about his book, Iron Man. John worked with Randy Huntley to tell his story of the legendary Cubs catcher's life. Joining me on the Fly the W podcast, I'm happy to have on John St. Augustine. He is the author of the book, Iron Man, that he worked on with Randy Huntley, legendary Cubs catcher. How are you doing today, John? Paul, great to be with you. So excited to do this. Talk about this fantastic book and the uh, the opportunity to uh, to shed a little light on the Iron Man of baseball, Randy Huntley. Now, when we talk about Randy, you know, what was it do you think that made him finally decide to want to kind of tell his story? I think because when he turned eighty years old, he realized he's running out of time. You know, uh, he and I talked about this over the last ten years. We've been friends a very, very long time. I did not think. I would be the guy to do it. I mean, I've written a lot of books for a lot of people and my own stuff and things like that. But uh, we went back and forth and I thought, you know, he's got a story to tell like everybody does. The the route to Major League Baseball for him was uh, not certain, but it became one that was very, very uh, powerful. And and obviously, as Cub fans, we all know that. Uh, So when he just after he turned 80 years old, he called and asked, we go to breakfast. I said, sure. So we're at breakfast. He's kind of fidgeting, which means he probably doesn't want to pay the check. He wants me to pay the check. (laughs) But in all seriousness, uh, he says, I think it's time to write the book. I said, great. Good luck with it. He goes, no, I want you to write it. Okay. Wow. And then I said, Randy, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 guys in this town that are pure sports writers that would really be able to do something with this. He said, I trust you. What am I going to say? No. 
So uh, a lot of work went into it. And uh, I make the, the comment in the back of the book in the afterward, there's a great book called Wednesdays with uh, Tuesdays with Maury. And this became Wednesdays with Randy for over six months, eight months, somewhere there. Every Wednesday, we go to breakfast. Uh, and he would be mobbed by Cub fans. It's amazing to me, Paul, that people were remembering stuff from 67, 68, 69, 70. And we're all talking about it in the parking lot before and after breakfast. So once we finished that, we would go to his house. And we would talk for two, three, four, five hours, whatever it took, about everything you can imagine about his life. And after six, eight months of that, then it was my turn to kind of burrow into my studio and, and take all these parts of the puzzle and put it together in something which you now have there called Iron Man. And, and when I read the book, the, the thing that really, the, to me, there's two people that really play an important role in Randy's life. Obviously, the first one being his father. And it was, mm. it was just so interesting, the impact that uh, Randy's father had on his career. I mean, everything from coaching him to being his first agent to a PR guy, you yeah. know, and, and, and the one thing I think that, you know, maybe just doesn't even get credit is that his father was the one that taught him how to catch one-handed, which is basically normal now, but was not the norm back then. Yeah, 100% right, Paul. So his dad, Cecil Randolph Hundley Sr., one tough SOB. This guy weighed 155 pounds if, if he's lucky, but he was built like, you know, pig iron. Uh, he played semi-pro baseball for over 20 years. He was a catcher. He broke every hand in his throwing, every bone in his throwing hand, I'm sorry, many times over. And he was a prodigious a home run hitter. There's, there's a, I found a, a, an article with a headline. It says, Hundley hits 560-foot home run. I mean, come on. So when it was time for young Randy to learn the game, of course, he turned to his dad, was was kind of his hero. And he went through all the different positions on the, on the diamond. And his dad said, you could be a great pitcher, but you could ruin your arm. And we don't want that. So after he'd gone through all that, there's no one place left. That's behind the plate. And you're 100% right. Back then, in the day, catching two-handed with a mitt and holding the other hand right next to it was the norm. And that's where all those foul tips and things like that took those guys out, bent fingers, what have you. And he said, you're going to learn to catch one-handed. I do not want to see that right hand up there. And if it come, I'm coming to get you if I see that hand up there. And he, he, Randy tells the story of his dad putting his finger in his forehead at like eight, nine years old and scaring the crap out of him. And that stayed with him his whole career. He said, we'd be playing in, in St. Louis. I'm, I'm up against, you know, Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and all these guys. And I'm hearing my dad in my head saying, don't put that hand up there. I'll come get you. So it was very profound. And you pointed out, if his dad had not done that, I'm sure somebody else would have come along. But it just happened to be Hundley. Uh, he was the first one-handed catcher in MLB history. Uh, and after that, Johnny Bench followed. And once Johnny Bench followed, that was it. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, there's so many good stories uh, if you are a true baseball fan throughout the book. And I remember listening to, uh, there's a famous story, um, you know, where uh, Ron Santo and Billy Williams were coming up and Roger Hornsby basically told, you know, each guy whether they should go back home and get a different job right. or if they were going to be MLB right. players. And I found it really interesting. I didn't know this, that Randy got some good hitting advice when he was a young prospect from Hank Sauer. Yes. And maybe not a lot of Cub fans know this, but but Hank was, was a very popular player in Chicago in the early oh, yeah. 1950s, MVP in 52. And I always love when the old generation passes on advice to the new generation, like Hank Sauer passing his knowledge on to Randy Huntley. You know, 
um, I'm reminded every time when Craig Council, who was the new manager, was playing, he had his bat way up in the air. Remember that? He'd be twirling yep. way up in the air. And Hundley did something, yeah, similar to that. He would time pitches by twirls. And after about six or eight pitches, you know, he walks over and says, that's not going to cut it, kid. So Hank Sauer, if you read his stats, was Superman back in the day. I mean, it was incredible what he accomplished. He also wore number nine, by the way. And I'm not sure there was any connection when Yosh gave Randy number nine. He knew that it was really Hank, you know, it was kind of continuing the, the legacy of Hank Sauer. Uh, and eventually Hobby would wear it in 2016. But that few minutes in the batting cage, even though Hunley is not known for his power and for home runs, I mean, you know, and, and, and hit, you know, all that stuff that maybe Bench would be known for, some of these these catchers today, it shifted him into a, a position of being a very strong hitter back at a time when catchers weren't really known for this because they were just expected to catch, and that's all they did. So they didn't really care what your batting average was. But Hundley, if you read his game summaries, which there's a lot of them in the book, you can see he was a very clutch hitter when it mattered. He had more home runs in his rookie year at that time than any catcher, uh, 19 of them. So, you know, he knew his way around the plate, and uh, Hank Sauer had a lot to do with that. Yeah, just, you know, so cool. And and then, you know, when I when I think about Randy's debut, September 27th, 1964, yeah. it's at Wrigley Field of all yeah. places against the Cubs. And 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 if that's just not poetic bait justice, but but just thinking about his teammates that day, Matty Alou, Willie Mays, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Duke Schneider. I mean, he had to have, I mean, that had to have been a intimidating. But man, can you just imagine how much knowledge and learning how to play the game the right way when those are the guys on the bench next to you? Yeah, no doubt about it. One of the great pictures we came across that Randy had from his archive is that picture of him squatting at Wrigley. You can see right field clearly behind Randy, you know, doing that. And he was brought into that game to pinch run for Duke Snyder, of all people. He wasn't <laughs> brought in to catch right away. And you're right. How uh, you know profound was it uh, that eventually he would come to the Chicago Cubs not much longer after that and make that his home for so long? But there's also a picture there, I believe it was the 1966 Topps rookie card, and Randy smiling big time. He's just a kid, you know, and, and he can't believe he's, he's on the Topps rookie team card list. And he said, do you know why I'm smiling so much? I'm like, well, I guess because you made the Topps team. He goes, no, McCovey, Cepeda, and Willie Mays are all making fun of me off behind the photographer. I think they were mooning him, but we cleaned it up for the book. <laughs> and, and, you know, like you said, he came in to pinch run, but his very first start happens on June 28th, 1965. The first pitcher he ever has to face wow. is Don Drysdale. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, of uh, yeah. all the, I, I was talking to my dad, who's a huge Huntley fan, and it's just yeah. like, oh, Drysdale was a headhunter. I mean, yeah. God, can you imagine that? No. And, and you know, there's so many versions. You know, I – Randy would talk about his view of this, obviously, but he remembers having conversation with Drysdale later and Sandy Koufax, who was the second one, and later on down the line with Bob Gibson, these great, powerful pitchers that, you know, you got to go up against. And you know, look, I like the game today, but I got to go back to those days when these guys were, you know, pitching complete games. They were men among men back then, not two innings here, four innings there. So these guys were bringing the heat all the time. And Drysdale, as you said, was a headhunter. His job was to make sure you didn't want to step back in the box again. So Hundley's first at bat, you know, he Roseboro, who's catching, says, you better watch your butt because it's coming. And Randy's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And next thing you know, here's Drysdale yelling, watch out because it's coming right for his head. And after a while, he just wore him flat out. And I, it was either him or the Koufax uh, story where 
he realized he's not going to hit anything. He should just pack a lunch and go home. It's pretty funny. Now, he, Randy is going to come to the Cubs for a trade on December 2nd, 1965, along with Bill Hans. And it's interesting, yeah. the relationship those two men have. They're kind of interconnected throughout their uh, careers, uh, Randy and Bill Hans. But, uh, you know, he comes to the Cubs and they had hired legendary manager Leo the Lip DeRocher, who, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of different Cubs from that 1960s team talk. And to me, it was interesting because I feel out of everybody, it, it seems like Randy had the closest relationship, if anyone really could, with Leo the Lip. Um, and, and as far as the trust that Leo had in Randy. In Randy. Yeah, that's a good observation, Paul, because, uh, you know, DeRocher called the trade of bringing Hundley over the greatest thing since Gabby Hartnett. I mean, no pressure, right? And no pressure <laughs> on this kid to come over and be the next Gabby Hartnett. And I think he understood, look, Leo DeRocher, for all his faults, was an incredible ball player and incredible manager. And you had to learn how to deal with his managerial style. These guys were not, there was no politically correct back then. Just put that out there right on the gate. So when Randy was earning his wings, so to speak, with, uh, with Leo, Leo just pushed on him mercilessly to see what he had. And I think you know, there, we make the comparison of the book some sports writers called Leo the, the baseball equivalent of Vince Lombardi. I mean, it's the same in-your-face, up-your-butt, let's-get-this-done kind of deal. And I think Randy needed that. You know, he, he, At one point, we're having this long conversation about DeRocher, and I said to him, hey, did you ever make the comparison between Leo DeRocher and your father, and he sat back in his chair at the house where we're drinking coffee. He said, "Never thought of that before, but they are the same guy in so many different ways." So he needed that push, and I think that's what brought up the best in Hundley. And when the day came, and Leo finally tipped his cap and said, "You're the guy out there. You're the field general," the confidence that that brought up in him uh, never ended. Now, obviously, that you know the Cubs '60s team—they were all just a close-knit group. Yeah. But it seemed, you know, that the connection between Randy and Fergie was just so important. And Fergie wrote the foreword to, yeah. to the book Iron Man, and and Randy wrote the book uh, forward for uh, you know Fergie's book. It, it's right. just, I was there when uh, Fergie got his statue at Wrigley Field. It's on you know on Statue Row, and yeah. the when I talked to Fergie, just the the high praise that he had towards Randy Huntley. It, it, the connection between those guys is just absolutely, I, I just wonder if it was immediate or if it was something that took a little time to build. You know, it's so interesting. There's so many sort of back themes to this book, Paul. And one of them is that you got to recall the time these guys played in the sixties was turbulent to say the least. This is, you know, people think things are tough now you take a look from 60 to 69, what we went through as a nation in the world. And so you got Vietnam, you got civil rights, uh, you got the Democratic National Convention. You got four people assassinated in five years. And the, the racism that was going on back then was rampant. So you have this black Canadian flamethrower, and you got this country boy from Virginia, and you're going to put them together in Chicago, which is a hot spot for, for all the things going on with civil rights. And in some ways, there was an immediacy because, you know, they both, they're pros, right? They're, they're rookies, but they're pros. The second thing was is, and Randy talked about this. He said, you know, it just it just comes out to realize that color doesn't matter except whatever uniform you're wearing. Now, the players got that, but outside the park, that wasn't always the case. And so I think it didn't take very long for them to realize the importance of this relationship. You know, 
in that time, you got the white catcher from the country and the, the black pitcher from Canada, and you're putting them out there constantly, and their, their success is undeniable. I believe it was something like, I, don't, I can't remember how many exact what Fergie wrote the forward, but Randy caught more of his games than anybody else he threw to, including Jody Davis, including Jim Sundberg. You know, so those type of things mattered. And when I sat with Fergie this past August, we talked about the forward just before the book was printed. I was at the Hall of Fame game with Dunstan and Mark Grace, and we were all there together. And and he says, you know, it's about time this book got done. This guy is so humble, meaning Randy. I'm surprised he said anything about getting the book done. He's not a promoter. He doesn't call attention to himself. He just shows up and does his job. So we were so fortunate and uh, and humble to have Fergie write a great forward to the book. It's fantastic. Now, speaking of those 60s Cubs, obviously 1969 is the one that both, I think, revitalized the franchise, but at the same time, it was so, so crushing for anybody that lived <laughs> yeah. through it. Yeah. And it was the strange thing is that, you know, the amazing Mets are the ones that passed them and went on to the World Series, et cetera. But, but it seems like all the weird games that were negative happened against the Mets. Uh, Don Young missing two balls which caused some controversy for Ron Santo. There was the black cat game where some black cat came out of the, you know, who knows where and circled around Santo on the on deck circle. Yeah. But to me, the one that, that what Randy talks about is, is a game that was tied at two and Tommy Agee looked like he was thrown out at the plate. Rookie umpire makes a call. And, and to me, I don't think Randy ever got over that. And I remember I, I was I, there, you know, I was in a documentary called Wait Till Next Year. And, and Randy, they had footage of Randy after that call. And he literally is hopping mad. If you want to piss off Randy Hunley, just ask, just say Tommy AG and say Shea Stadium. That'll set him <laughs> right off, even at his, his age of 81 now. You know, it's uh, I, that was the first chapter of the book I wrote because that's it lit his fuse. We had breakfast that morning. We went back and talked. We're just talking. I got the tape rolling. You know, it's all informal. No real pointed questions. And he says, I'll tell you one thing. AG was blooming out at the plate of Chase. That's how this starts. The whole book started with that. So that's the first chapter that I wrote. And, you know, I, if they would have had instant replay like we have now in reviews, he'd have been out by a mile. It Hundley tagged him. And later before AG passed away, he admitted he was tagged. You know, Todd, Randy's son, played in New York for 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it was. And before I went to the Dodgers and back and forth with them, but he ran into AG and he said, well, tell your dad, I, I know I was out, but I'm not going to tell him that. So, but you're hundred percent right. There was this domino effect of these plays that seemed to culminate in this tag thing. And while he points out in the book, it probably wasn't the most important play of the year. It was definitely the most telling. It was kind of the, the core sampling of how this season was going to go so close yet so far. And the pictures in the book, man, I had more fun digging through thousands of pictures, literally, to find the right pictures that go in there. So that hopping up and down thing, that's in the book. Just, yeah, just it's something that always is kind of in my head when I when I think about Randy. And like I said, I didn't know he could jump that high. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm looking, though, 1972, he's one of a few catchers in all history to catch two no-hitters in one season. Uh, you know, I don't know if people remember the Burt Hooten no-hitter. That was the first one. Yeah. And then the second one is infamous in Cubs lore. That's Milt Pappas. Perfect game going with two outs in the ninth, a 3-2 pitch, and Bruce Framing called ball four on a borderline pitch. I don't know how Randy was able to settle 
Milt down. Milt was bitter about that until his dying day yeah. about that perfect game. That, that, but to think, two no-hitters and, and nearly a perfect game in one season, that is a rare accomplishment. Yeah, there's only five catchers that we could find uh, when I did my digging that have done that. I don't remember the other four guys, but Randy's one of them. And he talked about Bert Hoot. You know, Hoot never played minor league ball in his life. He's a phenom. He came out and he had this, you know, knuckle curveball thing that would drop off. Randy said it was as, as effective as Koufax's curveball. I mean, that's saying a lot. So he caught that game. And, of course, the infamous Fremming incident um, that, you know, just endeared Bruce Fremming to carpet cup fans forever. <laughs> not. Uh, he talked about how difficult it was. And, and what, what Fremming was saying is like, you know, if, if he comes up another step off that mound, he's out of here. You don't want that. And so Randy had to go settle down and say, look, you got a no-no going here. I mean, a perfect game would be great, and but we got to take care of business. And that the first time, then he had to go out and settle him down again. And he said the hardest part, though, was after the game was done, having Milt <laughs> strangle Bruce Fremming at some point, you know. But, yeah, it was very, very cool. Now, you know, that, that obviously teams can't stay together forever and, and that yeah. 69 team is going to kind of break up. But there's some some interesting characters that are going to come after. And, you know, the one guy, I, I was at Club 400, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Stuart McVicker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this was a few years back. And it was Joe Pepitone and and Randy wasn't even on the bill. He just kind of showed up because, Rand, you know, Randy yeah. loves Club 400 and what it's all about. And all of a sudden it was the two of them. They were roommates. Yeah. Uh, Leo didn't trust Pepitone. And so he basically makes Huntley be his roomie. And the stories between those two, you got the, the foul mouth New York, you know, first yes, baseman. Yes. And you got Randy Huntley, who's never said a swear word in his life. Right, right. And, and the two of them, uh, it, it is literally one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Man, I wish I could have been there for that. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, Joe Pepitone passed away during the writing of this book. And Randy, for two or three days, was inconsolable. He loved the guy so much. And to see, he hadn't talked to him for a while, and to see that kind of emotion from Randy just really shed a lot of light on their friendship and their relationship. And you're 100% right. You know, we put a few stories of Peppy in there, but there's some stuff you just can't put in print. It's just not a good idea. And you're right. So Randy's version and Randy's vocabulary of shoot and shucks is a little different than what Pepitone would have told the story. <laughs> but my favorite one that we do have in the book, and I got to just share this here real quick, is that apparently Pepitone had a motorcycle and he parked it on purpose outside of DeRocher's office at Wrigley. And so he would deliberately get on the motorcycle and start revving it up and just to piss off Leo. And eventually, Leo figured that something to do with the handles because he's driving the motorcycle was screwing up Pepitone's wrist, which changed his batting. Probably not true, but it was a way for Leo to dig into that. And so the whole story goes is that Randy gets called up to Leo's office, and he thinks he's being traded. And he comes out, and he says, well, your roommate, he's got a motorcycle, and it's ruining his batting because of all the, that's going on. And Randy's like, what do you want me to do about it? And he says, well, we're going to have a meeting. I want you to go find Pepitone and, and tell him to keep his mouth shut in the meeting and not say anything. I don't know where he's at. Go find him to, for this meeting. So Randy tracks Pepitone down because he's smoking a joint in a bathroom stall somewhere. And he follows the smell of the weed to, to, to connect with Pepitone. He hauls him back to the meeting. And Leo starts in with his stuff. and going. Back. Now this is in, I think this is 1971, 72, somewhere in there. Uh, Pepitone's been around for a little while. He's got his fake hair on and the sideburns and the whole thing. And at the end of Leo's rant, 
he raises his hand. Pepitone raises his hand, and Randy's like, what are you doing? And Pepitone says, Leo, Ralph Hauk doesn't manage this way. What is your problem? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It just set the Rocher off in every direction. And then stuff about Ron Sano Day got pulled in, and then the GM had to come down, and people are at each other's throats. And he said at one point there was four guys restraining Ron who wanted to strangle DeRocher. DeRocher's ready to quit. Randy's sitting there and looks over at Pepitone is just enjoying the show. He was, he was, he was, and both, you know, just an amazing guy, Peppy. And just like I said, that's, that's what Randy would call me and say, Peppy. Hey, Peppy. Peppy. And, and, and you so know, and Paul, no slouch, two time gold glove, all star. I mean, this guy had the what? goods. He was, he was not just a loud mouth. He was a great guy, a great ball player. <laughs> now, after Randy gets traded, he goes to the Twins in 74, the Padres in 75. And just like I, like I said, it's just baseball is such fortuitous, you know, just the way things work sometimes. He finishes his career with the Cubs. And in the book, you guys talk about this, this really this last home run that he hits that, yeah. you know, if you want to tell that story, that one really kind of got we to We talk about the bit. double? We got yeah. a second. It was a double, actually. So he, double, his first, sorry. Yeah, his first time up, I think it's the eighth inning. Kenny Rudolph had been catching at that point. Randy comes in. He's back from playing with San Diego. He just didn't feel like, you know, he was done with baseball. They, the Padres actually offered him a managerial spot. He turned it down. He still wanted to play. So he goes up back with the Cubs. He's in his first game back. I think Dutch Renner, one of the best thumps of all time. You ever go watch a Dutch Renner highlight video? He would just scream like that. It was great. So Dutch Renner's catching. They're playing the uh, Dutch Renner's the ump. I'm sorry. They're playing the Mets, actually. And Randy gets up and just drills a double off the wall in left center field. He's standing on second base, and he said, I knew I was home again. He, it was a capacity crowd to play against the Mets. Everybody watches that. Uh, and, and they just stood a standing ovation. He saw some of the Mets players giving him an ovation because everybody's kind of in the same boat. He said it was the most emotional moment for him in his entire career uh, to have those accolades come down on him and be back home and finish his career with the Cubs where he knew he always would be. Pretty emotional. Absolutely. And and you mentioned the Padres offering him a managerial career and, and he was hoping to go that pathway with the Cubs and it unfortunately it didn't work out. Right. And again, it's it's weird how life works out because you know, there he is, you know, baseball's over. What's he gonna do next? And just out of happenstance, the the idea of a fantasy camp comes out. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's a gap here, right? So he he, he they bring him up once he's quote retired from playing. They bring him back as a bullpen coach slash emergency catcher. And, you know, that lasts for a little while. That's, you know, his introduction to becoming a manager at some point. So they send him down to the AAA. He does really well there. And it bounces around back and forth. And at one point, they're going to do a revamp of the uh, the Cubs minor league teams. And he was told he'd have a bunch of uh, new players coming in he could work with. He was very excited about this. Now, you got to remember, too, back when he played, these guys would have off-season jobs. This is not like now where there's a guaranteed contract of X amount of dollars. Even if you get fired, you're paid for the rest of your life. None of that existed at this point. So prior to the managerial thing, he was working, selling cars or working in insurance or at a company at the bank or, you know, uh, trading stocks and stuff like that. So it was a very different time. So managerial uh, position would be stability for him and his family. And you look at the catchers that have been great managers, Rossi and, and you know, some of these other guys have all been catchers because of the, of the way they see the game. And that didn't turn out. They fired him. And he was bent, let me just tell you that. Uh, and, you know, so that was option was off the table. Had to figure something out. Went home, sulked for a few days. And a friend of his, Rich Melvin, 
who was the guy that started all the Let Us Entertain You, Entertain You restaurants in Chicago, uh, said, hey, about doing kids camps. So they went to Harper College, which is not far outside of Chicago, approached the AD there. The AD knew who he was. We'd love to have you here. In record time, these camps filled with kids, four, five, six, seven days a week. And Randy said it wore his hillbilly fanny out because <laughs> these little kids are running around learning the game and stuff. So after one season of that, uh, somebody asked him, it was probably Melman again, or he had a partner at the time who you know was with him for a little bit, said, what about getting some of your former teammates to come teach the kids? And he said, that's when the epiphany came. He had this thought that if he could recreate the major league experience, spring training especially, but major league experience for, for fans, guys like you and me, that had never been done before. It did not exist. There was a couple of corporate things here. You could have Bob Gibson come out and sign your ball or something, but certainly not suiting up, certainly not playing with the, with the, the pros against the Joes. That had never happened. So in 1982, late 81 into 82, he started reaching out to friends and guys that he had played with and said, this is what I want to do. And he had his first camp in January of 1982. And within six months, the next one filled up. We talk about in the book how important that was because Leo DeRocher agreed to be the coach of his former teammates in that <laughs> second fantasy camp, Pepitone included. And Santo was there. And there was a great reconciliation to a greater or lesser degree because of what had happened in the clubhouse years earlier between him and Santo. And at one point in the after, uh, kind of after the, the ball game, they had these big dinners. And Leo got up and was just emotional and talked about, you know, how wrong he was in busting on Sano and a lot of these guys, something you'd never thought Leo DeRoche would do. The whole room was, you could hear a pin drop. And so it went on from there. And for 38 years until COVID hit, the Randy Hunley Fantasy Camps were out two or three times a year. I played the 1993 camp. Uh, it was a fascinating and fantastic experience for me. First paid writing gig I ever had, Chicago Sports Profile Magazine cover the Randy Hundley fantasy camp and you're going to pay me $250. Where do I up and sign up for this? And it was fantastic. And, and then we became friends and, and that's how all the rest of this unfailed. But there's a whole chapter in the book about the campers. They supplied me these stories. I had w way more than I could use, but a special shout out to Beth Chaplin in Minnesota, who's been to 30 camps, 35 camps. The first time she ever went was with her dad's it was the first father daughter uh, camp experience. And the transformational experience this was showed up when we did our book launch last August, this past August, uh, at La Villa on the northwest side of Chicago, best Italian in the city, little plug for La Villa. And we had, you know, over 250 people show up and a huge contingent of the fantasy campers came, some wearing jerseys and all that kind of stuff to see their coach. And real quick, Fergie Jenkins points out in the opening of the book in the forward, that while Randy never managed at the level he would have liked to in the bigs, for 38 years, he managed thousands and thousands of uh, very talented people who want to play in the fantasy camps. That's that's uh, really something to be to be celebrated. And, and, and again, now you see other teams doing oh, yeah. the same thing. And, and it, it was it was Randy who was the first to do it. And, you know, when you, when you listen to the campers talk and you read their stories yeah. to them, it, it was, it was something sacred. It was something very important. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the pros versus the Joes, but you also had celebrities there, Phil oh, Donahue, yeah. John Cusack, Chris yeah. Chelios. And for a lot of Cub fans, you know, they don't realize that Eddie Vedder, you know, Pearl Jam, who is my understanding going to play Wrigley this August. Yes. Um, that, that Eddie wrote the song someday we'll go all the way 
at the request of Ernie Banks at Randy Huntley's fantasy <laughs> camp. Mean, how, Can you just imagine that? That's <laughs> a movie, man. I mean, come on. I mean, to see Eddie Vedder sitting there with Ernie Banks strumming on the guitar writing this song, and Ernie's like, you know, snap, yeah, it's pretty good, Eddie, keep going. It's just it's just the stuff dreams are made of, you know, and you're 100% right, you know. There's a great picture of Eddie in the book and, and talked about that experience. You know, Bob Surratt, who's at WGN here in Chicago Radio, he went to the camp early on in 1983, so, you know, he's in the book. There's a great picture of him and Ernie because they were, they were locker mates. Uh, Mark DiCarlo, who is in, in Los Angeles, the comedian, the TV personality, you know, he says it turns grown men into children, which is really important. Baseball, at its core, to me, is about remembering the 10-year-old boy or girl inside you that loved the game. Besides all the crap that you that gets surrounding on it, uh, and that's what it gets down to. And to a person, the people, when they reach out to me after they've read this book, that's what happens. They are emotional, for better or for worse, the 69 team. You know, it is what it is. For a long time, they were the most lovable losers in baseball. And there's not many of them left. You know, those guys are, are kind of few and far between. And so we achieved our goal, which was uh, really on three things. To tell Randy's story, to, to, to show how this, this skinny little kid from Virginia ends up being an Ironman catcher in the big leagues, a premier catcher for years, uh, gold glove, all-star, the leader of the Chicago Cubs. And then he went on to this great other career as the fantasy camp guy. That was number one. Number two was to show the backdrop of where these guys play. I mean, again, to, not to beat it to the ground, but there's a story in there about the Cubs getting ready to play a uh, exhibition game before the opening season in 1968, and they're in Indiana somewhere, and all of a sudden, Randy says he sees Fergie Jenkins running like a man with his hair on fire through the lobby of the motel and getting ready to you know, lock himself into his motel room, and Randy's like, what, what's going on? And they just find out that MLK had been shot, and Fergie says they're coming for us next. Can you imagine having to go pitch? I mean, come on, him, Billy Williams, all the players of color back then, they were put upon in ways you and I can't possibly, nor could the players of today possibly understand. So that was another piece. This was this historical part. And then the third part, I think, is the appreciation of the game before sliding mitts, you know, before pitch clocks, before the whole outfield was adorned with, with signage, how baseball in so many ways is now an experience to be had, not just go to the game. You know, when I was a kid back in the day, I'm probably got a few years on you, young fella there. Uh, <laughs> I used to go, like you hear these stories, you know, my mom would give me 10 bucks for a double header. We go on Saturday morning and take the bus down, work, walk up Clark Street and, and sit up and wait for the, the bleachers to open. And you can sit there all day for a double header, get sunburned, yell your head off. I learned more words in left field. My parents never taught me for the bleacher bums. And all of that stuff was like, those are the three pieces of the book. The pictures really, I think, pull all of it together. And I got to tell you, it's uh, we are pleasantly surprised, quite frankly, with the success of the book, people buying it. You know, they keep, we keep restocking. We just came through the Christmas season and sent out countless autographed, personalized copies to Cup fans all across the country. So, you know, it is it has become a thing. And of all the projects that I've worked on in my career, which is well over 30 years now in radio and broadcasting and TV and all this work I've done, you know, for literary uh, and things, this is the best thing I've ever been a part of. We're friends, but it's more than that. And to see this for him, the accolades he's getting, to see him all dressed up at the, the book signings we've done and signing books endlessly and shaking his hand out because he's getting tired of signing books, man, it doesn't get any better than that. I got to tell you, you talked about emotion, and I did get emotional when I read the last chapter of the book. Um, it's called Extra Innings. Yeah. 
And I don't know if it was always his intention to write that chapter or your guys' intention to, to put that in there. But, you know, it, it's to me, it's hard because I, when I was a young kid and I'd go to CubsCon, I mean, you know, when you looked at Huntley or when you looked at, at, at Ron Santo or Ernie Banks or everything, you know, these guys were big, strong guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, these guys used to just rib on each other. They, you know, all these sessions at Cubs convention and, yeah. and, and, you know, they would all be, I remember, God, you know, Becker ripping on Santo or you oh, would yeah. have, um, you would have, uh, I always remember a funny one was always Jose Cardinal and Randy would, would sit there and rip on each other. And it was just so you could just sense the love and admiration and, you know, time passing, you know, five, what is it? Father time's undefeated. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's really, when, when I read about him talking about his wife, about his former teammates, yes. um, it really, you know, is, is a reflection of his life and, you know, it really kind of hits you hard. And then that, that whole, you know, winning the world series um, when the Cubs won it and Tom Ricketts and Cranny gave him a, a ring, a world series ring. I mean, truly yeah. a, a great ending and, and it just really brings the whole book full circle. Yeah. It was tough to write that. You know, um, he and I talked about what to include and what not. There were stories that we'd like to put in. We thought we revisit them. So we'll leave that out. It finds its own narrative along the way. These book projects find their own life, basically. And we got to that last chapter. You know, we talked about that. How do you close this out? You know, as you mentioned, his wife, Betty, passed away uh, 20 years ago. It's been very, very difficult for him. It's not something you can prepare or plan for. And it's, it took half of him away. He says that. I'm only half the guy I used to be because she's gone. And... And then these the partners and the people he's worked with, you know, some of them are gone. Then you get to the teammates and how much of that, as you said about Cardinal and these guys, you know, they all bucked on each other. And you go down the roster, and I think there's only 17, 18, 19 guys left from the 6019, including Pepitone, who came in 70, but we kind of lumped him in there. And it makes you look at these guys and the whole thing a lot different, at least it did for me. And I've known some of these guys over the years. And when we started talking about it, he, you know, first thing he talked about was Ron Santo. He's literally getting ready to go play golf and see Ronnie, and he got a call from Ron Jr. Totally unexpected. He knew he was ill, but not that much, right? And then it goes to Ernie Banks. You start talking about that. And then you start going down a list of these guys who are no longer here, and these names are the names we grew up with, like you said. So not only is it his loss, Paul, it's our loss because that part of our childhood, whatever, that's gone. It becomes something in a history book. You know, Glenn Beckert, like you said, I still have his autograph, you know, my autograph book. I look at it now and again, this strong autograph of this guy. It's like he cannot be gone. It's not allowed, but it is. And so really kind of winding it all up. You know, Randy's 81 now. He's pushing towards 82 next June. He's had health problems. It's been up and down. You know, there's some challenges there. Uh, but I will tell you, the thing that I found most interesting in all of that, even at his age, is that, you know, his grip is as good as it's ever been. You know, sometimes I give him a boost up and he'll grab my hand. I'm like, damn, boy. <laughs> what have you been doing all night? He has this inner fire in him that has not gone out. While the, the machine has its bumps and bruises and, and challenges, the inner spirit of Randy Henley is, is right there. And no more is that prevalent when we'll be talking about something. For example, there's a story about Kenny Holtzman's no-hitter. Randy didn't catch that game. He was injured. So he's at home watching the game with a ruptured torn or torn toe tendon or something like that. So he can't catch the game. I think it was either J.C. Hyde or John Bacabella. And talking about that game that he's watching on television, not even catching, and it was against Atlanta. And Henry Aaron hits a ball 
that had the wind not been blowing in, there's no hitter. It's gone. It would, it would have been a one hitter. and It would have been a, a run. And so we're recounting that going back and forth. And I said, yeah. So as, as I'm writing this, I would review with him. And I said, well, the ball right center or uh, left center. He goes, no, stop. It was a dead center, dead left field. I'm sorry. It was dead left field. And he says, I remember seeing it clearly on TV. I don't remember seeing it clearly on TV. I'm just going by what the stats talk about. Where was that? But he knew exactly where that ball had been hit. He knew exactly where Billy Williams was standing. He knew exactly what pitch Kenny Rudolph threw. I'm sorry, restart that. He knew exactly what pitch Ken Holtzman threw. So when he does things like that, I'm like, well, he's, he's still there. So it's been a, a high education on baseball itself, not just his story. And all the other stuff that's in there about Morgana, the kissing bandit, and Cleet Boyer, and some of this stuff that he would recall, he would actually got embarrassed. We talk about, I saw this woman bouncing out of the stands, and she just bouncing. I can't remember who the ump was behind him, and they just said, they just started blushing. You know, it, just, it was just a bit much for him. So it's just so much of this is uh, will never leave me. Uh, I, I have this huge poster you can see behind me, but over on my wall of fame over there, I have a huge uh, replication of the, of the cover of the book. And for a guy like me, I talk about this in the afterward, for a kid like me who at 10 years old was waiting on the, on the corner for an autograph uh, in 1970 during a rainout game, and I was getting ready to leave, and here comes Randy's red Corvette, and he stops and rolls the window down and pulls me out of the rain and signs my mitt. And then 20-some-odd years later, I'm writing a story about him, and then I'm playing in the fantasy camps about writing his book. Come on. I mean, it's gold. And, and, you know, the first, you know, when I first met Randy, you know, as a younger man, you know, he's kind of an intimidating president. You know, like he's you said, very forward. Yes. Bird grip. Very, you know, yeah. but God, a, a heart of gold. And I yeah. guess the thing to me that I still look at is the fire in the eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I have a picture in my memorabilia collection, an eight by 10 uh, of Huntley. And he's like looking into the camera and you can just see yes. it piercing. And it's just an unbelievable. It's one of my favorite autographs because I, I don't, I don't. I, it's like a picture to me that just encapsulates the complete essence of the man. And like I said, just, just a, a wonderful, wonderful book. And I, I really recommend it for any Cub fan, any baseball fan. Um, you know, I, I already, I gave a copy to my father. He went through, he was done with it in about a day and a half. Yeah, right. uh, you know, he couldn't put it down. So I just really, it, it is called Iron Man, legendary Chicago Cubs, Kencher, Randy Huntley, and John St. Augustine, I really appreciate you jumping on here and talking about the process because it truly is a special book that I think all Cub fans would enjoy. I will appreciate your time. And I, I Randy sends his best wishes. You know, you'd like to be here today, but it didn't work out. But uh, we appreciate you flying the W for us and getting behind the book. It's great stuff. And, and I got to tell you real quick, my final story in it. Uh, I mentioned about being at the Hall of Fame game with Dunstan and Grace going in. At one point, we were up in the booth. Uh, they gave us a Ricketts booth, which was very nice. And then right next to it, Crane Kenny has his booth. So we're over there sitting. And Crane Kenny and I are going back and forth about different things about the game and stuff like that. And I happen to look down, and here's Billy Williams sitting here and Randy sitting here. And I'm sitting in between them eating ice cream out of a little cup helmet, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm 64 years old, but I'm really 10 years old. To sit, I never would have guessed that. And to hear how they talked about the game between these two great grizzled, battered, all-star Hall of Fame veterans was stuff you know too bad the book was already in print because that would have added just to it so i keep i keep that picture on my camera on my phone when i want to be reminded about how special this journey is billy williams here and randy's sitting here and crane kenny's behind me and i'm eating ice cream out of a little mini chicago cubs batting helmet it was the best stuff man 
Well, thank you so much, John. And, and Cub fans, get the book, Iron Man. You're really going to love it. Best place to do that, by the way, is lulu.com. The only place you can get it is lulu.com. It's not on Amazon for a lot of different reasons. Lulu.com. Put Iron Man in the search bar. and you're There you go. And, and we'll have all your information to link to it, and we'll be right. good to go so people can get their copy of Iron Man. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. This is the Fly the W670 podcast. It's season two. It's episode number 100. The Cubs Iron Man. Crowley, great job with that interview. Don't forget to listen, download, and subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media platforms. And don't forget the five-star review. Uh, Crowley, some sad news for the uh, Cubs family, those uh, who attend Wrigley as much as somebody like yourself. Yeah, it was on Tuesday that I got word that Rocco Caputo, longtime uh, vendor at Wrigley Field, um, at uh, you know Guaranteed Rate or whatever they're calling the Southside Stadium, the old Chicago Stadium, uh, he passed away at age 56 of uh, following complications from a liver transplant. He's had liver issues for a while, and 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 he was able to kind of fight it off for a long time. He, Dustin, he began uh, vending at Wrigley Field when he was 16 years old. And so his dad was a vendor. He, he vended for 40 years and, you know, he was anyone that met Rocco. He was just, a, he was just an old school throwback kind of guy. Here's a picture of him. If you're on the uh, score, 670, the score YouTube channel, but everybody knew Rocco for all the, like I said, I'm a season ticket holder 24 years. So he was there the entire time I've been going to games pretty much my whole life. And, you know, he got a lot of notoriety when he appeared on Undercover Boss. So if you remember this, um, Todd Ricketts, one of the uh, owners of the of the Cubs from the Rickett family, he decides to go dis under disguise. And one thing he decides to do is become a hot dog vendor. And it didn't matter if Rocco was selling beer or hot dogs, whatever. Rocco could just, you know, he just had that natural gift and people would love to buy stuff from him. And so Todd Ricketts has to sell all these hot dogs. And basically he throws them in the garbage, but puts his own money so that it all equals out I at the end. I was so aggravated by that, Crowley. I mean, I was incensed. We, I went on a rant on that on the air. Uh, and that was just an awful way of that. Yeah, I, I did not like that at all. I, I hate throwing good food away, number one, and then trying to cover it up with, you know, a millionaire times fives money to cover the, uh, the, the, the cost so that he didn't have to finish the job. Yeah. Well, you weren't going to get that past Rocco is what I would tell you. <laughs> you, you weren't going to get that past Rocco and, and Rocco just took a ton of pride in his work and just, you know, this was a picture I took with me and Rocco. This was um, right after opening day, not too long. It was and and, you know, uh, you know, he just looked great. And, and I, I heard his health had kind of taken a turn for the worst uh, after the off season and so, during the off season. So, you know, it's, it's, it, he's just, when you go to Wrigley long enough, and this is the thing Rocco followed in his dad's footsteps. And I know other beer vendors <laughs> that I've been going to since I was, you know, 21 years old, you know, buying beers and, and, and their kids are now beer vendors and all that stuff. It, it, there's a, there's a camaraderie. There's, there's a, close-knit feeling amongst everybody that works at Wrigley Field. And, and you talked about it earlier when you went to Winterland is, is that these people, whether it's security, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the vendors, whatever, these are the people that make Wrigley the friendly confines. Every time they're just, they're, they're just such amazing people and they become like family. And so Rocco would a lot of times head over uh, to Arizona, to Mesa. 
And and a lot of the vendors will go do that. They'll they'll go head over for a month and work in Mesa. And and it's it's just a family. And and they're just wonderful people. And you know, to lose someone like Rocco is a, a tremendous loss. And it's just it gets tough, Dustin. When you know, it, over the last few years, I feel like we've lost a lot of people at Wrigley. Uh, you know, part of that family. And I guess it kind of comes with time. You know, Father Time's undefeated and. I think, you know, there's new people working there, but, you know, for some of us that have been around a while, it's hard to kind of lose these guys. And, and Rocco was one in a million. He even got to go on after the whole undercover boss thing. He actually had Stephen Colbert came out, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert from the, the late show. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that would come around to Wrigley a lot when he was younger and, and he came out and sold hot dogs with Rocco. So Rocco kind of became like this you know, celebrity at Wrigley Field bender that that people recognized him from either undercover boss or from uh, the late show with Stephen Colbert. And, and you know, he just took all in stride. And, and if people asked for photographs or people asked for autographs or whatever, he wouldn't turn anybody down. And he, you know, and, and he was just a great guy and he will truly, truly be missed. Um, somebody that, uh, you know, larger than life figure and, and, and condolences to his family and, uh, you know, I'm sure the Cubs are going to do something, a tribute to him come opening day. Condolences indeed. I remember him from the show and then now seeing the pictures that you shared. Nice job doing that. I definitely remember seeing him at Wrigley over the years. Uh, we want to wish each and every one of you listeners a happy new year. It's been another great uh, season for Crowley and I. I guess when we get back, Crowley, it's going to be season number three, right? I mean, this is season number two. Yep. Do we not kick off season three until actually we kick off opening day? I forget. We, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge. I forget <laughs> how it exactly works, but feels like it could be. It's episode number 100, though, of season two. Pretty crazy. And uh, again, hoping that you, Crowley, and everybody listening has a great new year. Yeah, Dustin, it was, it was a fun year. I, you know, just it, for us, this was our first season where the Cubs were in contention and, and, and just the excitement from the fans and, and the, and the great feedback and stuff that everybody gave us. It's a lot of fun and we got a lot planned for the new year. So don't go anywhere. Cubs fans, we're, we're going to be here. And when we come back again, that free agency should start moving. Cubs con is just around the corner and we got a lot of fun coming up. So go Cubs. It's all over.